And we're to the point now where we've really concluded how we get our modern English Bible. Okay. Um, if you were here this morning, you heard Pastor Chris give an amazing like, two-minute summary of this class. Okay, he talked about biblical inspiration and how the authors didn't write what they wanted. They wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Scripture or the Holy Spirit. He gave a great definition of that. He took us to 2 Timothy chapter 2. He took us to 1 Peter chapter 2. He talked about how inspiration was like a boat moving under the wind. Then he talked about how the Bible then, so that so that's the initial, you know, how we got going. Um, and then he talked about some things we're going to talk about later, which is the fact that the Bible was something we can understand and and um, we should interpret it grammatically, historically, and redemptively. And there's going to be times it's challenging because we weren't there for the historical aspects. And so a lot of that stuff sets us up perfectly for what we talk about tonight. But, but the Bible was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that gave us these original manuscripts that the authors penned. And then the church, through the first couple hundred years, were able to select which books were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and therefore should be included in the Bible. And that process we call canonicity led to the collection of 66 books that we have. Those were then transmitted through the years, both as a way of preserving what we had, just like we back up the hard drives on our computers. It preserved what we had, as well as replicated it so that it could be distributed because other people... And other churches needed those scriptures as well. That led to many of the modern Greek and Hebrew Bibles that we have. We looked at a couple of those versions, and, uh, and we have um, the Codex manuscripts, and we have the Papyrus manuscripts, and we have just thousands and thousands of pieces and parts and fragments and complete works of the New Testament from which we can translate now into our modern English Bible. And so we go through this translation process where we go from the original language and then we translate that into our modern English Bible. Okay, and that leaves us with the product that we have. And I just want to remind you of a couple of things that we started with from week one, and then we'll jump into a couple new things as well. So that leaves us with this Bible, right? It's, it's a collection of 66 books written by approximately 40 different men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit over a period of about 1,600 years. But, as we've seen, and as you've been reading in our textbook, there's one story, one theme. Pastor Chris used the word this morning, one meta-narrative that goes throughout the Bible, and that's the person and work of Jesus Christ. The reason we have the Bible is because it's the means by which God has revealed himself to us. It's the means by which he's starting this relationship and it is the very word of God, right? It is a divine product. The Bible claims to be the word of God. And we've, looked at, we, we've seen these verses. We haven't looked at all of them, but these are just a few places where the Bible states that it is the word of God, and we believe it to be. And so, really, Christianity is by revelation. It's not by self-discovery. It's not by self-illumination. It is because God has revealed himself to us by writing really by writing himself into the story. 
Is that not in there? You, you, I didn't see that one. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna fire my secretary. <laughs> okay, it's it's in your first packet. <laughs> Refer back to week one. Do you, do you have this back in there? Did I not print this either? Maybe I didn't print it. This was also I pulled back in from week one. Just to remind you that God has, it should have been printed off. I, I really must have messed up today. This was in your week one packet. I just stuck this back in, but it should have been um, should have been printed off. Um, but if you remember, God's revelation was in two different ways. We have what we call general revelation, because we see God in nature. We see God in providence and the fact that He is given gifts like rain and sun. We see it even in our conscience. But then we have special revelation, or sometimes called specific revelation, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and in Scripture. And it's in Scripture, then, the, spe the specific revelation, the special revelation, that reveal all that God has chosen to disclose to the human authors, right? These are the, this is what God wants us to know. But then all of that results in these key doctrines, now, you do have this. This is on that page three. Now, the word doctrine is kind of a scary word, but really all it means is teaching. So these are teachings. These are ideas that theologians have put together to kind of wrap up all that it is in the Word of God and Scripture. We're not going to spend... A lot of time on this and I wouldn't expect anybody to actually memorize the terms uh, it, but I want to expose you to them because I think it's going to direct how we view things moving forward and so these teachings are our belief and what we hold to in terms of the Bible we're gonna see the teaching or the doctrine of inerrancy the doctrine of authority the doctrine of necessity, the doctrine of sufficiency, and the doctrine of clarity. Now, not everybody who claims to be a Christian might actually believe these things, but this is our belief based upon our understanding of the Word of God. Okay, And so let's just look at these a little bit at a time. We have the doctrine of inerrancy. This simply means that we believe that the Bible is without error in the original manuscripts. Simply stated that the Bible is without error. We believe what is recorded in Scripture is true to fact. We believe it's factually accurate. We believe it's consistent with one another. And we believe that is without error. And we primarily believe that because the Bible is a divine product. 
So for example, just from a, a logical deduction of how we got the Bible and who we believe God to be, we believe that God always operates in a manner that is consistent with who he is. Okay, and we know that he speaks truth and he is not capable of lying. And therefore, since God is true and God breathed the Bible, then the Bible must be true. We do not believe that God would have intentionally lied to us when he wrote when the authors wrote the Bible, that he would have allowed the authors to misunderstand something, that they would have penned something that was inconsistent. Now, we we know from the process by which we got scripture that through the translation and the transmission and translation that small errors have crept in to our modern Bible. But as we saw a couple weeks ago, those errors really involved, you know, things like splitting two words into one or one word into two, um, switching letters around, maybe dropping a letter. And we saw that none of those passages actually affect the doctrine that we believe. That if you look through the manuscripts, there's like 99% agreement between all of our manuscripts. So we understand that small errors have crept in through the translation transmission, but we believe that the original manuscripts of the Bible are without error. And we believe that the Bibles that we hold today are um, usable for us to study. You know, we can get a picture of this inerrancy if we just if you just look at Jesus. You think about how did Jesus use the Bible? Now, when Jesus was alive and when Jesus was teaching, he was using the Old Testament. But the way that the Jews of that day had the Old Testament was similar to the process by which we today have the New Testament. And it's very it's very, um, it's very good to actually go back and study how Jesus used the New Testament. Because when you see the way he believed it and the way he taught from it, gives you indication that he had total confidence in it. And if he can have confidence in the scripture, we can have confidence in it as well. I put up here just a couple places where Jesus uses some very sophisticated teachings from the Old Testament. I've decided not to go into any of these in detail tonight. You know, you have Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And his defense against the devil was to go back and use Old Testament passages, which he believed in. Right When he quoted those passages, he believed them to be truth. And he believed that he could do that because he had the utmost confidence that they were, they were given by God and they were accurately transmitted for his use. You go to places like Matthew chapter 22. It's very interesting to see him interact with the Pharisees at that time because they came to him with questions and when he would, when he would engage them in discussion, he would go back and use the Old Testament and he did so in a way that was perfect beautiful. We looked at Luke chapter 24 a couple weeks ago. This is when he was walking on the road to Emmaus and he went back and he showed those two people 
He went back and showed them from the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms everything that it said about him and how he must suffer. And so he believed in the Old Testament. He had confidence in the Old Testament. He taught from the Old Testament. And he also taught about the people, right? He taught about Adam and Eve. He taught about Abel and Noah's Ark. When he talked about Noah's Ark, he talked about it as if Noah was a real person and the flood was a real thing, because it was. He was completely confident in that. He talked about factual history for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the destruction of Sodom and Lot's wife, Moses and his writings. He talked about David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jonah the fish, Daniel, Zechariah. So Jesus had the utmost confidence in the word of God because it's an errant. When you look at his teachings, he believed it down to the very, very tenses of verbs. It's really neat. This is a really important thing for us to believe. Augustine was a uh, theologian in the 4th century. And he said this, Most disastrous consequences must follow upon our believing that anything false is found in the sacred books. If you admit into such a high sanctuary of authority one false statement, then there will not be left a single sentence of those books, which, if appearing to anyone difficult in practice or hard to believe, may not, by the same fatal rule, be explained away. So it's a little, little hard to maybe grasp because of the translation from his language to our language, but what, what is he trying to say here? have a way of digesting that and maybe rephrasing that for us. It has to all be true because if you start pointing out things like even little things that you say, well this part isn't true, then what can you do? Yeah. That's it. That's that's it. If you're willing to say or if you come if, if you simply just say, well, I, I don't think this part of the Bible is true, then you can say that whenever you want about anything you may not understand. So you could come to something hard, like this morning, when you're talking about head coverings. You can say, well, this is hard to understand, so we're just going to say this isn't true. You know? it, it allows you to just basically destroy pieces of the Bible. And there have been people throughout history that have said, this part of the Bible is not true, rip it out. This part of the Bible is not true, and yeah, we're going to throw that away as well. And then you can basically pick and choose what you want to believe. We take the stance that the Bible is without error. It is a divine product. God chose to give it to us. Um, we believe it is capable of being translated, selected, and transmitted, and therefore we believe every part of it is divinely inspired and profitable for us today. Okay. I think that most people who, does anybody work with anybody, had conversations with anybody um, who don't take this position? Have you had any discussions where you've engaged somebody and they say, well, I, the Bible is so full of errors or, anybody had those conversations? A few years ago when I was in Texas, I did. Did you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Guy I was working with was from India. Okay. Okay. Raised Hindu. Raised Hindu. Okay. Um, basically, said he'd read the Bible cover to cover. 
Okay, but basically compared it to the Iliad or the Odyssey. That's just a really good story. A really good piece of ancient really literature. Good piece of ancient literature, yeah. 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 I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. So. Dee, you had your hand up. Do you, you've had discussions with my brother, but I know where he's coming from because we have the same father. Interesting, yeah. I think it's also murky, too, when, like, parts that are, you know, historical parts, people are like, well, this is allegory, and then this, um, you know, didn't literally happen the way it's written. I think that's kind of a murky thing also because, you know, it's not, like, written as a parable or something, so I guess it's a little difficult, I think, to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, a lot of people can't help but wonder if a lot of people don't end up, you know, saying that simply because they've heard somebody else say it and they've not actually dug into, you know, how is it that we could have a book today that, yes, may have originated 2,000 plus years ago, but go back and to read it and, and uh, really figure out, yeah, this is possible that this could be, in fact, true. And then you hear testimonies like this morning, you know, when Sherry was baptized, and you think about how that how the Bible just gripped her in a way that uh, she never expected, and just completely changed, completely changed her life. It's pretty amazing. Do you know? Did she just work with Betty? Or? Yeah, they just they're coworkers. I thought that was interesting too, because you yep. always think like when you talk to people at work, like I can't hardly say anything yeah. because I don't want to get fired. Like it's not going to lead any to anything. Holy Spirit, open someone's heart. <laughs> <laughs> Look out, right? Yeah. They're co-workers, and, you know, I don't know who initiated the first conversation if Betty first approached her and began talking, or if she began, you know, she just started talking to Betty. I don't know how it happened, but it's, it was an, it's an amazing testimony of, you know, this is fantastic. Yeah, she already had all those huge passages of scripture memorized. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, she said, I started reading in the book of Genesis, which isn't where most people would start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she read it from cover to cover, I, I think within like six months, wow. you know, Oh wow! I, I think if you put the, put the timeline together, it was not a long period of time, which puts me to shame. <laughs> All right. So, so that's the that's the doctrine or the teaching on biblical inerrancy. We believe the Bible is without error. Um, so the next one is the doctrine of authority, or the teaching of authority. We believe the Bible has authority. Are those slides in what you sent out? Because yeah. those three were. You, it was a big skip in, a, in the packet you gave me. Wow, I wonder what happened. Okay, so they didn't they didn't come online either, or I don't it, know. I I don't get your. I think. I lose his. Yeah. So I'm just asking if it did. It looks like so far it's every other. Is it really every other? Well, we go from page three to five to seven. I wonder what happened. Oh, you know what? You know what happened. I can tell you exactly what happened. 
I bet, so I had my wife photocopy these. I bet she didn't realize that there were slides on front and back. Um, and she told the copier to only print the front sides. Uh, I wonder who, does anybody have the, the original that has no holes punched in it? Because I, I tend to print front and back to conserve paper, and I bet she didn't realize that when she photocopied these for me. I just... I can, I can tell her, I can ask her to go make another more copies. She's in the nursery. I'll call her. <laughs> <laughs> Although she probably can't get out because the kids will, the kids will escape. I was, I was just trying to follow along. Hello? Uh, do you still have my originals for the handouts? Okay. Oh well, you didn't. You didn't print both sides of the pages. You print. You print. I got both sides online. They were two sided to start with. Yeah, I always print two sided. So they were two sided to two sided. It's all right. Yeah, I don't know where the original is, but it'd be quite the guessing game. But yeah, if you don't mind. I don't know who that is. Okay. All right, come on out. Bye. All right, so he's going to come get them. I don't remember who I gave the first one to. That would be me. That was you. Okay, Matt's got the packet. You mind if I give this to her? Go for it. Okay. All right. That's why I have all of them. I don't know what the problem is. I got every page here. <laughs> okay, so the next one is then the doctrine of authority. So all words, we're, we'll get you notes. We had, a, we had a little note confusion here, so nobody's got the complete packet of notes. So. We have a little time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. We have those all the time. So all words in Scripture are God's. In such a way that to disobey or to disbelieve any word of scripture is to disbelieve. There we go. It's hard to find good help. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Joanna. What? Just count exactly how many we need. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Oh, there we go. So all, all words in scripture are God's in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or to disobey God. You dis disobey the teaching laid forth in Scripture. It is therefore a direct disobedience against God because the Bible has authority. Any question on that? I'm not going to belabor that point. I think, I think that one's pretty clear. Okay, the next one is the doctrine of necessity. This comes right out of, I mean, if you, if you go back and you look at that table of general revelation versus special revelation, um, this kind of flows out of that. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel. We don't have the Bible, we don't have the gospel. Okay, We need the Bible for knowing the gospel. It's necessary for that. The Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral law. Okay, that's a direct result of that table 
of general revelation versus special revelation. We can know, the Bible is not necessary for knowing that God exists because we can see that from creation. Remember if we go back to Romans chapter 1. We look at Romans chapter 1. This is where we saw a glimpse of special revelation versus, yeah, from creation. In verse 18, Paul wrote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident with them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so from creation, we can see his, his eternal power, his divine nature. So we don't necessarily need the Bible for that, but we do need the Bible for knowing the gospel. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and died on the cross to save us from our sins. You know, to understand that we, as people, are sinful and the wages of our sin is death, right? We, we need to know it for maintaining spiritual life. You know, for the teachings that Paul gives on, um, you know, put off this and take on this, those aspects of maintaining a spiritual life and for knowing what God's will is. It's the doctrine of necessity. So if anybody comes and says, well, you know, I can be a perfectly good Christian in right standing and never read the Bible or never listen to the Bible be preached. It's like, no, you need the Bible. The Bible is necessary for maintaining your spiritual life and knowing God's will. Okay. The next one is the doctrine of sufficiency. So it's a little bit of a different aspect from the from the doctrine of necessity, but we believe the Bible contains all the words of God he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. So, so what did, did you just like make new copies or did you just add no, pages? I just made new copies. We killed a tree, that's all. Because <laughs> there's people screaming in the nursery and I got to oh, yeah. get back, so okay. I just did the. Now the challenge is keeping the old and throwing away the new, and I'll give you guys just a second to get everything recollated and. There. That explains so many things now. (laughs) 
so I, you know, I apologize for if you've written any notes on the previous ones. I know that would bug me. It's like oh, I wrote all that stuff down. Now I have to transcribe it. Okay, I have just a couple, a couple points that flow out of the doctrine of sufficiency. Um, so I'm just gonna, we're just gonna go through these point by point. So the doctrine of sufficiency should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or to do. Because we don't have to think, well, what about the missing pieces? Or, or what if, you know, I'm, I'm holding this, but what if there's a, what if there's another book just like this that I don't have, and therefore I don't have all the information? We'd say, no, the Bible's sufficient. This is all he intended for you to have, and so that should encourage us. We, we have what it is that he wants us to have. We, therefore, are able to understand what he wants us to think and to do. Uh, the doctrine of sufficiency reminds us that we are to add nothing to Scripture, and that we are to consider no other writing of equal value to Scripture. This is where many of the cults have gone off track, like you know, having the Book of Mormon. Yeah, they'll believe in the authority of Scripture, but they also believe in the authority of the Book of Mormon, and so they've added extra thing to that. And we say, no, this is sufficient. This is, this is all you need. The doctrine of sufficiency tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his redemptive work that is not found in Scripture. That kind of flows out of that second point. This is it. This is sufficient. This shows us that no modern revelation from God are to be placed on level equal to Scripture and authority. So if somebody walks into work tomorrow and they say, I've had this revelation... God has revealed to me this new thing. It's like, no, we believe the Bible is sufficient. This is it. This is all there is. Number five, we believe the doctrine of sufficiency reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or implicitly. The doctrine tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in Scripture, either explicitly or implicitly. Those are kind of very two, two very similar things. And lastly, this doctrine reminds us that our doctrinal and ethical teachings, we should emphasize that what Scripture emphasizes and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. Okay, and, and there may be things we would say, oh, I wish I knew more about that. I, I wish he told us more about this. I, I wish he would have explained more about that. And we say, he's given us all about that. He wanted us to know. We have to be content with that. And it should really guide us, right? You know, we should keep the main thing the main thing. So whatever the scripture is that says is the main thing, that should be our main thing. That should be our primary focus. That's what we should emphasize. And so if Jesus Christ is this theme... The personal work of Jesus Christ is a theme throughout Scripture. That should be what we emphasize. And we should be content to not understand all of the other pieces. And that's all based on the doctrine of sufficiency. Last one. The doctrine of clarity. Okay. This is one that Pastor Chris touched on this morning and the sermon as well. 
This teaching says the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. That's the doctrine of clarity. Now, that, that doesn't mean that we will understand everything in it today, okay, because learning is always a process. You know, I, if I were to pick up a geometry book, I may not know everything in it today, but it means that if I apply myself and I study, I could probably learn the things in the geometry book, right, Matt? <laughs> Maybe not as a freshman, but... Yeah. Um, and so I may not understand everything in it today, but if I am willing to read it and I'm willing to seek God's help in understanding it, I should be capable to do that. Let me give you the flip side. It's not a, it's not a mystical book. It's not a book, you know, where you have to have uh, a secret decoder ring to be able to know it. It's not a book where... You know, you have to reach the seventh pillar of, of advanced learning before the truth of the scripture will be unlocked because there are religions that believe those kinds of things. Or that I have to do some certain incantation or some particular thing before the secret truths of the scripture are unlocked. Or maybe that there's something like hidden deep in there. If I rearrange the letters and take out the vowels, I'll see a secret message. So that's what we're saying. It's not. Okay, it's not that. If you seek to understand it, and you pray, and you and you do the work to understand it, it's capable of being understood. So let's look at a few of these passages. Let's look at Second Timothy. This is where we're headed next, is to actually doing the work of understanding it. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul writing to Timothy. And he says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so here, Timothy is apparently, as a young boy, reading the sacred writings, that is the scripture. Other versions say scripture. I'm happy to read from a New American Standard tonight. He read them. He was able to understand them. They gave him wisdom, and therefore that led to his salvation as he understood the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, with the verses we've seen before, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. So not only is the word of God inspired, but it is profitable, it is useful. And he gives us four things. It's useful for teaching. Okay, It's useful for reproof. It's useful correction, telling us where we've gone wrong, and it's useful for training us because it's capable of being understood. Go to Hebrews chapter 5. Here the author of Hebrews is actually scolding his audience just a little bit 
because they've been lazy. And so he says to them in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, you know, he, he's just gone through a bunch of teaching on, on Jesus being the perfect high priest, and he's been talking about a guy named Achilzedek, and then he kind of says, concerning him, we, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you have become dull of hearing. So he's, he's going to get on him just a little bit. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk, not solid food. So he's basically saying, you're not advanced in your learning. You should be. Just like a baby must start out on milk because they're not capable of actually eating solid food and digesting it. And they need someone to process, you know, Essentially, a baby needs someone to process food for them, right? They need, they need a mother to eat it, convert it into a form, which they can then eat, which is the milk. He said, for anyone who partakes only of milk is not, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practiced, have their senses trained to discern good from evil. And he's basically saying... for. People who have actually trained themselves by studying the Word of God are now able to discern right from wrong. They've, they've honed their skills. They've given themselves God's wisdom because they've picked up the book and they have studied it. Okay, so all who seek to understand it, God will give them that understanding. And, um, of course, let's not forget James 1.5. Let's flip over to that. This is an important, important set of verses for us to remember. Because James says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So God is generous. And so if we ask God for wisdom, God will give us wisdom. Okay? So that's the doctrine of clarity. So that's the, the doctrine of inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. The doctrine of authority, that this is the very word of God, and to disobey this is exactly like disobeying God. You have the doctrine of necessity, that we need this book to teach us about the gospel, about maintaining spiritual life, and about knowing God's will. The doctrine of sufficiency, that this is all there is. We don't need anything else in addition to this and then the doctrine of clarity that we're capable of understanding it, okay? Any questions on that? Any, any comments?
Is it better when you have all the notes? <laughs> it's, easier it's, it's easier to follow that way, isn't it? It's clear. I'm sorry, but it's clear. <laughs> the clarity. I apologize again. Okay. And that's going to lead us into our next arrow, next couple of arrows, our last couple of arrows, which is the illumination and interpretation of Scripture. And so if we have this modern English Bible, it is through this process of illumination and interpretation then that God's thoughts become our thoughts. And that leads to the changes in our lives. So let's take a quick second. We'll look at illumination. We'll only have like one or two slides on this. And then we're going to make a major transition in the class, which will begin our study on how do we study the Bible. Okay. Couple slides on illumination. We'll get to interpretation. There's a few terms and definitions and concepts we'll put in place. And then hopefully from that point forward, we'll be it'll be very discussion-oriented, practical. We'll maybe try to practice doing this together, kind of show you the tools. We'll look at different tools that you can use and have available to you. Okay. So let's just look at this concept of illumination. And this kind of follows up on this definition, right, of the doctrine of clarity. And that is, illumination is the act of God, the Holy Spirit, enabling believers to understand the truth given by revelation and written down by inspiration. So the act of God, the Holy Spirit, enabling believers, those are the people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, to understand the truth given by revelation and written down by inspiration. So notice the definition, definition says believers. Okay, so illumination of the Holy Spirit is not something that happens to an unbeliever or, or someone who has not professed faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that God does to believers. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. And it's really kind of neat when you, when you start piecing it together. It's the Holy Spirit who inspired these writers. It's the Holy Spirit who illuminates us on these writings. So the same Holy Spirit who gave the scripture by inspiration is the one who helps us to understand it. And notice also that this is not new revelation. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit giving somebody new revelation. We're simply saying that the Holy Spirit allows us to understand what has already been revealed. Okay, that's a subtle distinction. He's not giving us anything new. He's simply helping us understand what we have. That's back to James chapter 1, right? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so... There, there's this, there's this kind of um, a little bit of a I don't want to say dichotomy, but but it takes two things, right? It's going to take the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but it also takes work on our part, right? We if we want to understand Scripture, we have to put in time, we have to put in effort, but all the time and effort by itself will not produce anything. You have to ask God. 
right? And you can ask God for wisdom, but he's going to give it to the people, the believers who put in the time and effort to actually look for it. You go all the way back to Solomon's teaching in the book of Proverbs, and he teaches of wisdom, and he kind of acts like a wisdom's a person, right? He personifies it. And he says, wisdom is calling in the, in the streets, you know, come search for me. If you search for me as you search for hidden treasure and, and seek for me as you, if you seek for gold, you'll find me. And so you can kind of get this picture of someone diligently searching for treasure ought to be the way we're searching for wisdom. And while we're searching, we're asking God. And so it's, it's effort on my part to study, but it's my prayer and asking God for wisdom through this illumination that he grants it. So let's look real quick at, at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is one of, when we talk about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is one of the major works of the Holy Spirit, is illuminating our hearts to, to the words of God. We've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 before um, because it's this whole concept of no one can really know the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God, and it's the Spirit that conveys these thoughts. And, and, and I'm going to back up to, to verse 6. He says, Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age have understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye, eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the hearts of man... All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of a man, which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And he goes on to say, but a natural man, that's an unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish, foolish to, foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, or your version may say discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that the Lord should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I apologize, I'm reading from the NASB tonight. Um, and if you remember, we talked about the NASB being a very literal translation, but kind of unreadable. <laughs> so I'm not used to reading from it, and it was a little different than I'm used to. But that's one of the concepts of, of, of um, illumination. And I'm going to go to one more, but this time I'm going to a Bible app and pulling up, pulling up 
different version. Let's go to John 16. In John chapter 16, you have Jesus sitting in the upper room with his disciples. This is the night before he is to be crucified. He's been teaching them a lot of things. And then, like, from chapter 13 to chapter 16, Jesus is just teaching his disciples things they're going to need to know because he's going to be killed the next day, right? And this is where he introduces us to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not, I'm going to say prevalent in the Old Testament. He wasn't a figure that was discussed or talked about amongst the Jewish people. So Jesus here is actually telling us that someone else is coming, and it's the Holy Spirit. And, um, and he calls him, if you remember from this morning, Pastor Chris brought this up, he calls him a helper or a comforter. And he says, it's good that I'm going because he's coming to be here. And we get to chapter 16, and we get to verse 12, and this is what Jesus says. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. That's the Holy Spirit, okay? giving us the truth of Jesus and allowing us to understand the words that were recorded in Scripture. So we call this illumination. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm being illuminated by the Spirit. I'm able to understand the things that I've read as I pray to the Lord and I read and I study and, and, um, and I pray some more. And I'm capable then of understanding the things that God has written for us. Okay? Not new revelation, He's not telling me anything that hasn't been written down. He's only allowing me to understand what has already been written down. Got it? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's illumination. Any, any questions on that? I know this has been, this is very information heavy tonight. So does that mean that everyone, a believer who prays, will <laughs> eventually maybe <laughs> so, so, so you have to pray and, and you have to study and and hopefully one day we all will but it doesn't seem so in present time because I think most of us have run into a lot of Christians yeah. and think Hmm. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's, but, but even just looking at, like, say, in my own life or in an individual's life, I think the things I believe now, there are things that I believe differently now than I did earlier on in my life. And I thought he knew it all then. <laughs> you know, so it's like as we grow and as we learn and as we study and as we talk and discuss and pray you know i think our thoughts change and, and i hope they change for the the right right for the better but you have to 
you know, sometimes clear out distractions because you're hearing things from other people which aren't right, and that tends to influence our thought. But one day we all will <laughs> believe. It's a great question. It's a hard question. Right? It's a hard question. It's partly why there's so many Christian denominations, right? Because people had disagreements on what something meant, and so they they kind of broke out and started their own church. And we encounter this rub when we go to work, and we have coworkers, and we may not believe the same thing, and we we can discuss and debate, and it's it's hard. I think it's the Apostle Paul. I mean, I'm not sure where it is, but anyway, he says that you know sometimes these things, like he's looking at looking at his life or he's looking at a glass a mirror that's not clear and, but he says that in time it'll all be made clear it'll all be made clear yeah no that's exactly right that's great <clears throat> and, and you know again Pastor Chris brought up that passage where Peter said in, in the book of Peter that Paul's writings are hard to understand <laughs> so you know, it takes time. It's it's a process. We don't always get it right. But what we do know, we can only know because of what he's he's helped us to understand. Yeah, it's tough. Is, is part of that, just like this morning's message about head coverings and all, that it was hard to understand what, what they meant because they didn't know what the questions were. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, there were the answers, but what were the questions? Isn't that true in a lot of places in the Bible? That we don't know what the questions were being asked for which those answers were given? Yes. And and there's a lot of other challenges as well. We're, we're, we'll talk about some of those. We, we, don't, we weren't there, so there's a, a difference in history. There's a difference in geography. There's a difference in culture. And those gaps make it challenging. And make it hard. And so what we have to do is we have to try to put ourselves in their place. But we're coming from a culture, so sometimes we have to put off our culture to try to put ourselves into their culture and, and understand their stuff. And it makes it hard. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy, but it's doable. Right? It's doable. And so even, even part of it is, is, again, we have to say, okay, you know, on these key teachings of the Bible, I'm willing to fight for and to die for and to defend. But maybe there are other teachings in the Bible where we're allowed to have different beliefs and we can still be Christians and discuss them and we're not going to die on that hill, so to speak. And even the way we've written our statements of faith, we've kind of written them in this tiered approach where these are the things we will die for and defend and these are the things we believe and you can you know you can come to church you but this is what we're going to believe and these are the things that we're willing to not die for you know the hill we won't we won't die on uh, but we believe and we can fellowship with people who don't believe those things and so you know we're we know that's kind of the, the way we view things So let's talk about this idea of interpreting. 
scripture. So I have this. I believe it's necessary. I believe it's authoritative. Um, I believe it's sufficient. But I want to know, it goes back to, goes back to Moses' prayer. Lord, show me who you are. Teach me who you are. Teach me your ways so that I may know you and I may be pleased with you. Um, it goes back to what we saw from the, the writer of Hebrews. I, I don't want to be a babe. I, I want to be a person who's capable of discerning right from wrong and, and being spiritually discerned. So I, I want to study it. I want to understand what God, God wants. And so I have to interpret it. Okay, I have to get into it. I have to find out what the meaning is as the writers write, and that's this idea of interpreting scripture. And so I, here we go, right? Here are the challenges. This is, this is what makes it hard. We, we have these gaps. One of them is a language gap. Okay, the original languages are not native to us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't translate them. We've seen how they did that. We know it's capable. We, can, we know they can do it without error. But the writings and the way they choose to write and the expressions they choose to use and the metaphors and all of those things are not natural. So we have to kind of figure those out. You know, they talk a lot about soldiers. That was an analogy you'll see Paul use a lot. But soldiers, and most of us aren't soldiers, and most of us never served in the Greek army and so you know we don't necessarily understand that and, and so we're trying to understand the language gap. Then there's the cultural gap that the culture of America in 2020 or 1950 or 1776 is different than the culture was in the year zero or 30 or 100. The culture is different. Pastor Chris talked about some of those cultural differences this morning. He was talking about how in Greece, you know, women were not valued and that Greek men could take a female baby and just throw it out in the field to die. It's a completely different culture. That's, that's uh, it's not the culture we live in today. So you have this cultural gap. You have a geography gap. You're reading through the New Testament, and we're talking about Macedonia and Achaia and Ephesus and Colossae and all these places. And it's like, now where's my map again? And <laughs> you know, I'm going. And you're going back. We don't understand the geography. We we're not comfortable with the Dead Sea, the River Jordan. We don't, you know, we don't have mental pictures of of those things or the Mount of Olives or Jerusalem. This is not our native native understanding of geography. Palestine, um, you know, Samaria, uh, Samaria, all these places it's not, are not natural. And then we have the history gap. The original audience was aware of events that we are not aware of, right? I mean, you think about in, in Jesus' time, the people knew about Pontius Pilate. They knew what he had done. They knew his, his personality, his history, atrocities he had committed they all knew that stuff they they knew about you know people who were rebelling against that they all that stuff was just nature to them and we don't naturally know that we have to go back and study that so these these things make it challenging it's not easy but it's doable
So there's a couple of terms. These are fun words. And, and I, again, I only bring this up just because more or less I want to make you aware of them. You'll probably never, some of these words you may never hear again, but I want you to understand the basis and kind of how we, we're going to talk about a method to study the scripture, and this is where the method comes from. We believe, there's, so there's a word called exegesis, which is the actual practice of interpreting the scripture. The opposite, and you can, you can kind of see the word there, ex, right, the come out of, as opposed to isogesis, which would mean to read into. So when we approach the Bible, we don't want to read into the Bible or make it say what we want it to say. We want to get the meaning out of it. And so this, this is the word exegesis. But there's actually an entire study on this, and it's called the study of hermeneutics. Okay, And so there's an entire course. It's like you can go to school and study geology or geometry or biology. You can go study hermeneutics. And it's the study of the principles of interpreting Scripture. Okay, so that's, that's available to anyone who wants to go study their hermeneutics. So that's a great conversation starter. Next time you're at a social <laughs> gathering, say, hey, what's your hermeneutics? <laughs> <laughs> then you're what? Okay, so anyways... I bring it up only is, is if you happen to be interested in, in reading some books about different, you know, about the way we study the Bible and our Bible study method, you may see them throw these words about. So I just thought I would at least expose you to them. Hermeneutics. Now, in, inside this, this concept of hermeneutics, if, if you think about it as a spectrum or a continuum, you'll find that people have different ways of interpreting scripture. And that can range from allegorical to literal. Okay? Allegorical to literal. So some people, when they study the Bible, they'll say, my belief is, my hermeneutic philosophy is that the Bible is nothing but a list of allegories. Okay? And, and therefore, you know, you're reading through the Old Testament, and you're reading about Nehemiah building the wall. And so you're like, okay, so the wall must, this is an allegory, so the wall must represent protective barriers. And so as I read the story of Nehemiah, what I'm really reading is that God desires for me to put protective barriers in my life to protect me from outside forces or something. So you see what I'm saying? rather than just reading it as a story of a guy actually building a wall. <laughs> so that's the literal interpretation, that we're reading a historical document of a guy building the wall, and we're studying his life and the events of happening, versus I must try to spiritualize everything. And so when it talks about finding, you know, Nehemiah building a well inside, well, the well must represent the Holy Spirit, and it must represent the refreshment that it brings to my soul. You know, that's allegory. So you kind of have this spectrum. Some people will approach everything allegorically. On the other end, you have people who approach it literally. I'm just going to read it for what it is. Okay, and so in allegorical hermeneutics, the actual words are not understood in their normal fashion, but there's some kind of a symbol 
there's some kind of a, there's always a metaphor. Now, the Bible does contain metaphors, but we believe when the Bible uses a metaphor, it's obvious that the writer is getting ready to use a metaphor. The opposite is the literal, and the literal hermeneutics attempts to interpret each word in its normal, literal sense. We believe it is the most consistent with the rules of communication and the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Okay, when, when we talk to one another, we interpret the words literally. Right? If, if you tell me that you're going to get in your car and drive home, I interpret that as you're going to get in your car and drive home, not that the car represents, you know, some mystical mystical thing and that you're departing to do something else. You know what you know what I mean? We don't allegorize it. So we believe literal literal hermeneutics is most consistent with most communication as well as the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. And so this is what we would believe here at Parkside. We believe and again, Pastor Chris mentioned this this morning, in what's called a redemptive, grammatical, historical hermeneutics. Grammatical is another way of saying literal. We believe grammatically that it denotes the meaning of any passage of Scripture must be determined by a study of the words and their relationship in the sentence and the subsequent paragraph, and that those words have a literal meaning. We're just going to interpret them at face value. The redemptive aspect implies that every passage of Scripture should be interpreted within the larger context of God's redemptive plan, which is the theme that runs throughout the Bible. You know, Pastor Chris said this morning, he says it all the time, find Jesus in the passage. Right? Find Jesus in the passage. If all of the books have one theme, the meta narrative of Scripture is Jesus Christ, the personal work of Jesus Christ, then we need to interpret everything in line with that. And then the idea of historical means that every passage of Scripture should be interpreted within the historical context that it was written and with the extent of revelation that God had made at that time. Okay. So that, that's our approach. That's what, at, you know, at Parkside, we believe this. We don't believe in the allegorical, we believe in the literal, and that takes kind of the shape in redemptive, grammatical, and historical. So then, that means these are the things that we're going to avoid as we approach this. We're going to avoid making the Bible say what we want it to say. As tempting as it is, we have to really avoid this, and, and it's a fight, it's a lot easier if the Bible would just say what I want it to say. My life would be much simpler. I just have my way, right? But we need to avoid that. We need to avoid superficial interpretations. Um, sometimes you just read it, the modern English version, and you say, yep, there's it. it says it. And it's very superficial. We kind of have to dig into it a little bit. We want to avoid this concept of spiritualizing or spiritualization, which is kind of what I was alluding to earlier when you start getting into a lot more of the allegorical and you're reading a historical book. Um, 
you know, about the Ark of the Covenant, and you try to start saying, well, let's say the Ark of the Covenant represents this, and, and you, you're kind of spiritualizing or allegorizing. We want to avoid that. And we really want to, we, we really want to avoid relying solely on the interpretation of others. Okay? Again, that's challenging. Uh, and and I'm, I'm not saying you can't, be influenced by other people because each of us have people in our lives that have been very instrumental in, in helping to shape, you know, we have when, when, you, when you become saved and you're being discipled, people are speaking truth to you and so you need that but if you go through your entire life and you never study anything for your own and you simply rely on everything being told to you by someone else um, it can be dangerous, right? You want to understand it for yourself, you want to embrace it for yourself, and you want to make your faith your own. So those are the things we want to avoid as we move move forward. So over the next several weeks, this is, this is going to be the method that we follow to study the Bible. This is going to be six steps, and it's... it's, it's um, I, I put this together, it's really a compilation of different approaches that I've been exposed through throughout my life. I found that it works well for me. It's, I think it's not overly complicated. Um, when I was at Cedarville University, each one of us was required, each student at Cedarville University is required to get a minor in Bible. And one of the classes we had to take as an incoming freshman was how to study the Bible. It was an interpretive a class to teach you how to interpret the Bible. Uh, Dr. Estes, the, the faculty member there at Cedarville, had written a small book on it. And that was my first exposure to this as a Christian. And so it was a complete semester on, on how to study the Bible. Through the years, I've read other books. John MacArthur has a small book, which is in our resource center, called How to Study the Bible. And he gives many of these concepts. And, and at one point in my life, when I was uh, uh, living in West Lafayette, Indiana, and attending Kasuth Street Baptist Church, a pastor of the church there, I took a number of guys through a study on how to study the Bible, and it was based on a book by Howard Hendricks. And so I've kind of taken all of those approaches, and all of them are pretty much the same, they just kind of state things in different ways, and I've taken all of their outlines and just kind of condensed it into my own outline, which you see here. And so the method that we're going to use as we move forward is the first thing we're going to do is we're going to read repeatedly. Okay, we're going to read repeatedly, which means that before we really dig into the passage, we really want to expose ourselves to the passage over a period of time and just kind of get to the point where that particular passage feels like it's kind of second nature. And we'll talk about different ways of doing that. And then once we've soaked that passage in, then we're going to begin studying the context. Okay? And that's going to try to overcome those gaps. I'm going to I'm going to put myself back in time. I'm going to learn on what's learn about what's going on at that time and when was it written, and what else was going on then, and who would the audience have been, and who was the author, and kind of getting a sense on all of those details that the original audience 
would have already known. Okay. Then we're going to make observations on the passage. You'll hear Chris, Pastor Chris, talk about this a lot too. You just kind of look at it and what are, what are the things you notice about it, and what are the things that aren't there, and what words are repeated, and what what are the maybe analogies given or metaphors given, and what words don't you see, and and you're just gonna just kind of just pour over it, right? And you're gonna just if you like to write. You know, this is where I like to get a pen out and write things down. And, and then once we do that, then we're going to study the keywords. We're going to look for words in there that seem to be very significant. And we're going to go back and we're going to understand them in the Greek language or the Hebrew language. And we're going to get the dictionary out and we're going to see what the words mean. And we're going to look to see where else those words are used and what we can learn about that. Then... Then, we're going to allow ourselves to go look at commentaries. Commentaries, as we're going to see, are books written by theologians who have studied a passage and are trying to help explain its meaning. So we'll go to those commentaries, we'll see what other people have written about those. And then, after that, we can put it all together, and that's where we can actually, you know, really understand what a particular passage is meaning. Okay, so that's going to be kind of that simple six-step method. It, it Again, it, it takes time, which I think is why a lot of us shy away from it, right? It takes time. It takes effort. But the fruit of doing it is amazing, okay? The, the time invested is time well spent. And we live in a day and age where we have so many tools available to us that it makes it much easier. We don't have to go to the library and sit in the library or do those kind of things. We can do it from home, and actually we can do it right on this, (laughs) which is crazy. Okay? So um, through the next couple weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll go step by step through this. But I want, to, I want to touch on point number one, because then I'll have a small assignment for us to do this week, okay? The first step in the process is to read repeatedly. And, and by read, I, I, I kind of put air quotes around it, because it doesn't have to be read. It can be listened to. But if you're getting ready to study a passage of Scripture, you really want to just get very comfortable and very familiar with that passage. And so... What I do um, is, is a number of these different things. I may, you would be great if you could read the book in one sitting. So if you're going to study Ephesians, sit down and read the book of Ephesians. Whole thing, right? It's six chapters. It doesn't take too long. But get an understanding of the flow of the entire book. Read the passage several days in a row. So maybe you're going to spend seven days. Every seven days, I'm going to read it. Some, some scholars will like read a book for an entire month. You know, they just, they just spend the whole month reading that book and just getting comfortable with that book. Uh, I use different translations. Going back to this, especially early on, I like to read a translation that is very loose, very readable. So I may pick up the Living Translation or the New Living Translation and just read it. 
and maybe on the next day I'll read the NIV and then I'll read a New King James and just read it in different passages because they've interpreted the word slightly differently. Certain things will stand out to you, certain things won't. So this is a really good time to be using some of those um, easier translations, the thought-for-thought thought type things. Listen to it. You know, if you've got to drive to work, you got some time in the car, put on the audio Bible. Listen to somebody else read the same passage. When somebody else reads the passage, you pick up on things that you don't necessarily see when you read it. Or you're driving along, you're like, huh, I, did, I hadn't noticed that before. So listen to somebody else read it. I like to read it out loud because, I don't know, sometimes it seems different when I read it out loud than when I read it quietly to myself. So, you know, sometimes I'll just find a quiet room in the house and I'll go read the passage out loud and read it prayerfully, okay? What you're doing is you're just exposing yourself to the passage. It's much easier when you get to the next step to make observations if you've gotten very comfortable with the actual passage. Okay, so that's the first step. Now, the reason I say that is because I kind of want to I want to do a little bit of a homework assignment. I'm going to pick a passage for us, and as we go through these methods, we're going to use a particular passage of Scripture, and that's going to be Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 14. Okay, that we're going to kind of use this as a model passage. So we'll study together and we're going to use these use that passage to highlight these different steps. So then when we come, if it'd be really nice, let's spend this week soaking in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Okay? So we'll read it. Um Read it in different versions. Listen to it. Um, and if you, I'm, I'm sure most of you have a phone app of some kind. One that I will highly recommend, we'll be using this a lot, is this BLB. I don't know if you can see that. The Blue Letter Bible. This is a free app, and, and you've got different versions in here. So NASB, NIV, New Living Translation, New King James, King James, American Stand or English Standard, the CSB. So you don't actually have to go out and buy six different Bibles if you have a good app on your phone, like the Blue Letter. But this is a free app. You can go Google BLB, or you can go to the App Store, get this app. You've got different versions, and it also has the audio stuff. So you can plug it into your car whatever, as you're driving along, you can listen to it read. Uh, this is another one. This is this Holy Bible app here is one that you'll find on App Store. This also has a number of different versions. Uh, boy, uh, yes, I'll say that, but remind me later. <laughs> you know, this has all of the versions and audio versions as well. So, Get these. I encourage you to get these. You can use them this week 